from Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, for you have broken on this day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Pray with me. Father, we pray simply this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm curious if you've caught it yet. It's definitely been going around. A pretty strong apparent virus here even early in the winter season. My family caught it this past week. We saw Star Wars, right? Star Wars has hit like a virus throughout the country and presumably the world yet again. In many ways, uh, it is perpetually being resurrected, right? I don't know if you've had a chance to see the film yet or not. There's some purists out there, of course, who have already dissected it and do not recognize it as a Star Wars film. Uh, There are others who simply enjoy Star Wars as a kid, like me, seeing the original Star Wars films in the theater when they came out. You know, the real ones, like the best ones, you know, four, five, and six, technically, in the sequence. Um, I really enjoyed seeing this one as well. There were some remnants and pictures back to my Star Wars days, right? Uh, And there's fun things about it, and even if you aren't following Star Wars to the nth degree, and even if you get confused with the narrative, there's something great just about going to the theater around Christmas, right? And to see visual effects and to hear a good score, if nothing else, of music. It's interesting now that there have been this many Star Wars films. I guess we are on, if we're six, seven, eight, I guess this is the eighth Um, or ninth Star Wars film uh, that has been produced. One theme that is consistent in the midst of what can be a confusing narrative is the theme of hope. And that theme surfaces in strong ways even in this latest film, The Last Jedi. And that theme really is probably most prominent easily in one of the the top five images or scenes from all the Star Wars series— ever, which happens in the last, or the new hope, a new hope, Star Wars 4, 
when Princess Leia is projected out of R2-D2 in a hologrammed image, reaching out to Obi-Wan Kenobi, telling him that he is their only hope. You remember that, right? I mean, that's pretty transformational uh, in this film series. And then that particular scene is actually shown again in The Last Jedi. Leia, the young Leia, projected out of R2-D2, telling Obi-Wan Kenobi that he is their only hope. And then that particular scene starts to unfold this theme throughout The Last Jedi, which is hope. The resistance was living in darkness. The resistance was few and far between. They were longing for deliverance and hope. And then it arrives through a new order and a new series of Jedis, right? That's what's great about Star Wars. Another great thing about Star Wars is it depicts this classic battle of humanity. In fact, you could pretty much argue any narrative worth telling has some sense of light and dark. Think of a great story. You think of the great literature, children's literature. Let's take Harry Potter. What would Harry Potter be without a semblance of light and darkness? Or Tolkien's classic, The Fellowship of the Ring. What would that be without light and darkness? Or even Narnia, what would that be without light and darkness? But it's not simply light and darkness, it's also this hope for redemption. Well, Isaiah 9 captures that in a way that would be more poetic and poignant and have deeper, longer-lasting, and eternal significance more so than all those other narratives. Isaiah writes to a people, as we've already said, that are wandering in darkness, that are weary, that are longing for hope. And Isaiah brings hope through the promised Messiah. That's what Isaiah 9 is about. Isaiah 9 is about hope, and specifically about hope placed within an individual who is referred to as Messiah, who actually in Isaiah 9 is revealed to be a child from the womb of a virgin. So Isaiah 9 is a message of hope from the Messiah. Let's unpack it a little bit more as we look at hope proclaimed and as we look at hope embodied. So Isaiah 9 is about hope in the dark. Hope in the midst of darkness. Isaiah 9 captures in many ways the hymn that we love to sing. The thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. But to unpack that hope, we're going to look at hope proclaimed and hope embodied. But before we unpack it proclaimed and embodied, we've got to think about this notion of hope because it's something I think that we struggle with. For many of us, particularly those of us that have lived longer than others, hope has moved to the point of perpetual deferment, right? It's just hard to hope. Like it hurts to hope. It hurts to hope that we could change. It hurts to hope that the world would change. It hurts to hope in the midst of brokenness and darkness and even death. And so in many ways, hope is deferred, maybe perpetually 
for many of us. So it sounds neat, but it doesn't mean much to us. And as a result of it not meaning much to it, we've falsified hope in our culture. We've actually sought to place our hope in things that cannot deliver. We look at things like jobs or money or material possessions or reputation or status or even our children or even our marriage, and we make demands on them that say something like, tell me who I am, deliver me, save me, give me hope. And then we're still left wanting. We sow seeds of false hope in other ways. We could call this Instagrammable hope or Facebook hope, right? When we project images, literal images, that carry with it projections of wonder and bliss that make others ooh and all, and hopefully make others just a little jealous, right? But it's interesting what technology has done to falsify our hope when so many of these images don't represent reality. But maybe our biggest issue with hope before we get into what hope actually is, I just think we've got to address this, is hope for many of us has been replaced with cynicism. Instead of hoping in the midst of darkness, instead of finding comfort and light, it's just easier to be cynical. It might go something like this. Desire has been crushed within my heart, so I'm just going to go ahead and crush it in everybody else's. And so in many ways, we experience, as Isaiah talks a lot about, shame. And then whether it be intentional, but most of the times unintentional, we seek to create and hurl shame into the world. And as a result of this, we're just cynical. And our cynicism is so thick and so prevalent that this whole concept of hope just seems so distant. And what we need is a breakthrough. We need to have our cynicism melted, and we need to have hope embraced. One of my favorite pictures and examples of this, a few of you have heard me talk about it before, but no apologies if you've heard this before. In 2004, you too was touring a new album, and as a result of that, the band U2, they went on Saturday Night Live. And on this episode of Saturday Night Live, you know, during the show, they played a couple songs. I think it was off How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. And they played a couple songs off that album at the, you know, the given spots during the show of when this happens. But then at the end of the show, they did something unprecedented. And apparently there were still a few minutes left of airtime before they had to go off the air. And you've seen this before at the end of Saturday Night Live. Once the final word is given, there's a lot of milling around of the cast and of the people and everybody. It just almost looks like there's like a party that breaks out on stage and then it cuts. But at this particular time, for whatever reason, there was a little more time. And because it's you too, and because Bono is so enigmatic, he decided in an unprecedented way they were going to play another song. So literally, people are milling around the stage. Bono grabs the microphone. Edge gets on the car, and they start to sing their iconic debut single, I Will Follow. Well, at this point, the whole place is in fury. The, the, the excitement is almost palatable. 
People are dancing around Bono, the great showman that he is, is making his way all throughout the stage, all throughout the cast. The band is crushing the song. And this is all still on TV. And at one point, Bono moves over to one particular character. Now, let's say this about Saturday Night Live uh, cast. Some of the most gifted human beings, arguably, that walk the face of the earth artistically, particularly in the realm of what they do. Also, because they live in the epicenter of culture throughout the world, New York City, they just happen to be people that are artistic, highly gifted, living in the epicenter of the cultural world. They also are highly cynical and without hope. And here this moment is happening. Bono is singing, I will follow, and he dances his way over to Amy Poehler. And as he's singing, he wraps his arm around Amy Poehler. And he's in this iconic chorus of the song where he's simply saying, I will, I will, I will follow. And Amy Poehler is losing it. She's bawling because she has been enraptured with beauty. And she's been enraptured in a moment. And hope has met her cynicism, and light has met her darkness. She was later quoted saying her whole body was blushed. That's profound. Isaiah, actually more profound and more poetic than Bono himself, desires to melt our cynicism this morning with the hope of the gospel. So first of all, Isaiah proclaims hope. And the hope that Isaiah proclaims, you need to know, is not the hope that we think about so often in our own lives and in our culture. We tend to use the word hope as synonymous with wishful thinking. It's fine in modern-day American language, but what we need to know is that's not the biblical concept or definition of hope. In fact, so much so, and those of you that are into grammar will like this, Isaiah uses the perfect tense in Isaiah 9. Scholars speak about this as the prophetic perfect. They talk about the prophets in Isaiah in this particular setting having a prophetic consciousness where in your text you read words like will be born and will be given and will be called. But if we were to take the grammar in the Hebrew literally, what is happening here is Isaiah is speaking about something as if it has already happened. He has gone through his prophetic consciousness into the future, and he is speaking in the prophetic perfect grammatically. And what he's saying is, this child, the Messiah, has already been born. This child already has been called. You see, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is a done deal. And so when this hope is proclaimed, we are not hoping with our fingers crossed 
that light comes into the darkness. We are not hoping as if we hope that UT's new coach is going to make our football team better. This is a done deal that has already happened where you have a prophet 2,700 years ago saying this has already happened. This Messiah has been born. This Messiah has come. This Messiah is called the light has come into the darkness already truly. I know not fully. And that's what we ache about. We have to live in between the already and the not yet, right? Between D-Day and V-Day. We talked about this last week. There's tension and there's longing and there's groaning, but we have to know this. The light has come to the darkness. And specifically, this darkness that Isaiah is talking about, the connotation there is death's darkness. It's not like a bad day that God's people are dealing with here. It's not even a bad year. God's people here are dealing with death's darkness. And Isaiah is proclaiming a hope of light in the midst of the darkness. Isaiah is also proclaiming a relief of burden. Did you see that in the text? That burdens will be relieved. The yoke will be removed. It reminds us of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 when he simply says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Aren't you tired? The interesting thing about cynicism is it makes us tired. The interesting thing about false hopes, they starve us. We're starving, we're burdened, and we're tired, and we're longing for relief. And Isaiah is proclaiming hope. Where do we get relief? I'll give you a word of application here, stuck right in the middle. I read consistently throughout Isaiah, and this is true throughout all of Scripture, but specifically in Isaiah, counterintuitively, relief is found in repentance. It's amazing. David speaks about this in Psalm 32 where he talks about when he covered his sin up, his bones wasted away, right? That's what Bilbo tells Gandalf. He's like butter scraped over too much bread. He's wasting away. We're longing to be relieved because we're burdened. Isaiah is proclaiming hope that brings relief to our burden. And the way that we can access that one way, maybe the beginning way to access the relief from burden would be simply through repentance. So we see light and the, the hope is proclaimed with the light and the darkness. The hope is proclaimed and a relief from burden. There's also a hope that is proclaimed with joy in the midst of sorrow. I mean, enough's enough, Right? I can remember talking to a mother when I was a youth pastor in Memphis whose son had suffered a fatal and surprising car accident. And I remember sitting in Kathy Bell's home at her coffee table, and she pointed to a stack of books that everybody had given her, and she said, I'm not going to read one of those. I don't care what those have to say. Haven't we suffered enough? already. And what Isaiah is proclaiming is, yes, you have. The days of warfare are ending, have ended already truly, and one day will end fully. 
There's a song that I love by an artist named Julie Miller. And the song is entitled, By Way of Sorrow. And she has this beautiful line in it where she says, All the nights that joy has slept will awake to days of laughter. Isn't that what you long for? Aren't you tired of joy sleeping? Like sleeping in too late and too long? Isaiah is saying, joy will come and deliver us from sorrow. And I'm proclaiming this to be true. And the last thing he says with regard to proclamation of hope, he says there will be peace in the midst of conflict. Conflict will be replaced with peace. That's what he's talking about when he gives these images. He's talking about the garments of the warrior and the boots And Isaiah speaks about this in other times where he talks about swords will be turned into plows. The conflict that we now experience, Isaiah proclaims, will then become peace. But hope is not only proclaimed, that would be great if it is. But if it's simply proclaimed, at least a skeptic could say, talk is cheap. But in Isaiah 9, it's not simply proclaimed, it's embodied. It's embodied in the person of Christ. And that's what we see in the last set of verses that I want to read again now. These are verses 6 through 9, what I'm calling hope embodied. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Hope is embodied in this Messiah. Hope is embodied in these names. Wonderful counselor. Now, the way that I always read this before I learned more about it is probably the way that you might read it, which would be wonderful counselor. That's great. I've got a wonderful counselor. Like, she's really great. We've been having these issues, you know, and she really, she's wonderful. She's a wonderful counselor. And I think what this means is Jesus is even better than Teresa, who's a wonderful counselor. But if we unpack this more and we start to look at it more literally, that's not actually what this means. I'm sure Jesus is a wonderful counselor, in a therapeutic and psychodynamic way. But what Isaiah means is this. The Messiah is simply a wonder. Period. Or he's a wonder of a counselor. It's not so much that he is performing this job of a paraclete coming alongside of you, reflectively listening, which is a great thing, in marriage and counseling. But what Isaiah is saying is, he is a wonder. Are you in awe and wonder at the hope embodied in this Messiah? But he's not only that in his wisdom. He's a wise planner in being this wonder of a counselor. But he's also mighty God. And the Hebrew word here is El, like El Shaddai. He's God. He's not like a mighty God. He's not like the mighty God. 
But hope is embodied in this supernatural reality that he is God. And anytime we get into the supernatural realm, it's got to get mysterious. So don't try to unmystify that which is mysterious. How in the world could a woman be impregnated as a virgin with someone who is fully man and fully God? It's a wonder. It's supernatural. But he is mighty God. He is also everlasting Father. What that simply means is he's going to be a father for all eternity for his children. And isn't that what we all want? I think about Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion on those who fear him. I know we've all grown up, and as we grew up, we need our parents less and less. But if we're true, at the end of the day, you know what all of us are longing for? An everlasting father. Like the perfect father. The father who will be there forever. Throughout all eternity. And this Messiah is an everlasting father who has compassion on his children. Who is embodied in images like Luke 15. A father who is willing to take shame on himself by tucking his robe and his outer garments into his undergarments and running to embrace his sinful child. Don't you want that forever? Well, this Messiah is an everlasting Father. And then the last way that we see hope embodied through these titles of this Messiah is that he's a Prince of Peace. And this has to do with him ruling. This has to do somewhat with this silly, though genuine, old debate on having Christ as a Savior and a Lord. Some of you would maybe remember this. And people would say things like, you can't have Christ as your Savior and not your Lord. And then other people would articulate a theology where Christ is a Savior whom you need to put on the throne of your life because you have dethroned him. Quick theology lesson. Jesus does not need you to put him on the throne. He rules and he reigns on the throne forever. And all governments. American Republicans. American Democrats. Worldwide socialist and communist. Rest upon this child's shoulders. And he rules them like it's nothing. My favorite text is from Isaiah 40. Preached on it a couple weeks ago, but didn't get this far in it. Who measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him counsel? Think about him ruling and being the prince of peace. Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Listen to this. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales. You ever had flour? when you're making something, spill on the counter. Like you put it into the bowl, but then there's some flour like on the counter. 
right? And then you kind of wipe it. You either wipe it in the trash can, but rarely do you ever wipe it in the bowl, and it's just kind of there, but it kind of lingers, right? And even after you wipe it, the flour still kind of lingers there on the counter. And what do you do with it? Nothing. Why do you do nothing with it? Because it doesn't matter. It's totally insignificant for what you're doing. And when we think about this Messiah, and we think about him being the Prince of Peace, and I want you to think about your favorite government official or worldwide leader, and I want you to think about the flower on your counter. (sighs) Nothing. Dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are accounted as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Then whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him? This is hope embodied. He's a wonder of a counselor. He is God and he is mighty. He's an everlasting father throughout all eternity. And then he's a ruler who is a prince of peace. I love this and joy to the world. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. Makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders of his love. We need hope. We need a surety. We don't need wishful thinking. We need to hear it proclaimed and we need to see it embodied. There was another man that need to hear it proclaimed and embodied. He was 56 years old. He was a struggling composer and musician. His career was waning, being sabotaged by critics, calling much of his work blasphemous. He was depressed, and he was bankrupt. He had serious health issues just a few years prior, had suffered a stroke that left him temporarily paralyzed, and he was growing more and more obese. One scholar says this about this 56-year-old man. His financial difficulties grew worse and worse. His creditors are all over him. The critics are scathing. The public remains silent and indifferent, and gradually this struggling composer loses heart. A benefit performance has just saved him from imprisonment, from debt. But what a disgrace to buy his life back as a beggar. He becomes more and more reclusive. His mind grows even darker. In the year 1740, he feels a beaten, like a beaten, defeated man once more. His former fame is dust and ashes. Why, he sighs, did God let me rise from my sick bed a few years earlier just to bury me once more? A lost man, weary of himself. He wanders London by night. Sometimes he stops outside a church. Sometimes he sits in a tavern. And sometimes he stares down from a bridge over the River Thames and wonders whether it might be better to cast all his cares and just jump. One night, this man had been wondering this way again. It was August 21st, 1741. The day had been warm and sultry, they say. No one was still awake in his house on Brook Street. He used to come home from every walk with a melody, but now his desk and his mind and his heart were empty. There was nothing to begin, nothing to finish. Then there was a package on his doorstep from a friend with a poem. He wasn't interested. He retires for the night. He wakes up the next morning 
or in the middle of the night because he couldn't sleep. And he opened the document which his friend had written as a poem and he wanted him to put to music. You know what that document said at the top? Is this word. Messiah. And he starts to read. And he starts to write. And 24 days later, a quarter of a million notes later, 260 pages later, 15 notes written per minute later, Handel has produced Messiah. His servant would check on him periodically because he would hardly eat or drink. And upon finishing, his servant came in and Handel said this, I did think I saw heaven open and I saw the very face of God. That's hope. You know what provoked that hope in Handel's life in the midst of being bankrupt, discouraged, dark, and depressed? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Last question before we close. How in the world is this going to happen? How do I get this hope? What do I, how do I channel this in the midst of my darkness? What did Handel do? What did Isaiah do? You ready? Nothing. Did you read the last verse? How in the world is all this going to happen? The passion of the Lord will accomplish this. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this text. Most of all, we thank you for the hope that you are in our lives. We pray that you would break through our cynicism, that you would break through our false hopes, that you would break through our darkness and our weariness, that you would even break through death, and that you would bring light and hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.